Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Let's continue with the next lecture. Savitarka unity is the commingling by imagining of word, purpose, and knowledge. Nirvitarka is when the memory is purified, as if emptied up to its true form, and the purpose alone shines forth. Similarly explained are Savichara and Nirvichara, which are subtle conditions. These subtle conditions terminate in the undesignated. Tatra Shabdarta Gyana Vikalpaiha Samkirna Savitarka Samapatihi Tatra Shabdartaha Gyana Vikalpaiha Samkirna Savitarka Samapatihi Tatra Shabdarta Gyana Vikalpaiha Samkirna Savitarka Samapati Smriti Parishudau Svarupa Shunye Varta Matra Nirbhasa Nirvitarka Smriti Parishudau Svarupa Shunye Varta Matra Nirbhasa Nirvitarka Smriti Parishudau Svarupa Shunye Varta Matra Nirvasa Nirvitarka Smriti Parishudau Svarupa Shunyevarta Matra Nirvasa Nirvitarka Etaheva Savichara Nirvichara Cha Sukshma Vishaya Vyakyata Etayaiva Savichara Nirvichara Sa Sukshma Vishaya Vyakyata Etayaiva Savichara Nirvichara Sa Sukshma Vishaya Vyakyata Sukshma Vishaya Tvam Chalinga Paryavasanam Sukshma Vishayatvam Chalinga Paryavasanam Sukshma Vishayatvam Chalinga Paryavasanam Savitarka Nirvitarka Savichara Nirvichara. Patanjali embeds so much in these four sutras. First, he becomes quite specific on the process of mental engagement. In Savitarka, we adopt a word, we reflect on its purpose, and thereby we organize knowledge. In the earlier example that was given, we take a cup of tea, 
and we name it. Ah, this is chai. We go through the process, the grahana, of drinking this tea. And when that process happens, and as it reaches its culmination of, yes, I've had a cup of chai, there is this knowledge, not to be denied, that an activity has been engaged, that I have had a cup of chai. Now, this signifies how the self relates to each and every particular object. Every engagement with the external world takes place through the process of sa-vi-tarka. Tarka is a term way from the distant past in the Upanishads that refers to the cogitative process, refers to the capacity of the mind to organize, to name, to understand, to gather knowledge. And the beginnings of it require a certain physicality. At a second stage, rather than having the need to analyze what spices are in this chai, to analyze what is the optimal temperature for the water to reach before it gets poured over the tea leaves and the spices to create the chai. Having already gone through the process of finding the best teapot, finding the best receptacle, we've actually fallen in love with Turkish tea glasses that are a little bit of an hourglass shape and they hold the heat. Just a beautiful object, beautifully crafted. All of those aspects are vitally important for the presence and the confirmation of external realities, but the experience can never be reduced to one particular aspect. The chai does not lie either in the clove or in the orange pico tea or in the right temperature or in the specially crafted teapot or teacup. At some point, we must arrive at this beautiful, literally, moment of Zen, of emptiness, to just let all that fall away. Let all of that be purified by this experience of shunya, of an emptying of all history, all anticipation. So that experience rises to its true form, rises to why it's there to begin with. One of the beautiful themes to be taken up again and again by Patanjali as we continue with this study is that why do we have experience? Why do we crave experience? Why do we value experience? The reason is twofold. So simply, we can enjoy. And it's nice to have a cup of tea. 
but also at a radical level so that we can understand that everything, every specific thing, every cup of tea, every waft of incense, every caress of the morning breeze, every gaze upon a beautiful tableau is for the experience that allows consciousness to be revealed. This is when the purpose alone shines forth. Now, human beings are complex and layered. Hence, we've moved from Savitarka, why the cup of tea, and Nirvitarka, ah, silent presence. That's the meditation that requires the presence of the physical. But in order for that state of clarity be, to be attained, another process must take place. And this is the process of savichara and nirvichara. Our complex psychology, our complex emotionality, talks about not merely what we can cogitate, but talks about how we move, our comportment, our way and manner of engagement. And this is called sa-vichara. I love how this particular word is cognate with the word chariot, cognate with the English word char, car. And going back to the metaphor from the Bhagavad Gita and going back to the metaphor of the charioteer, we are the charioteer. And we are driven quite literally by layers and layers of history. The name we're given from birth, the relationship we have with that name, the body into which we are born, constantly undergoing change, the thought patterns that govern our, our interests, that govern our proclivities, that govern in a negative way, our addictions, that govern our, again, habits of worldly engagement. All of that lies within the realm of sa-vichara. Again, I'll, I'll reintroduce this word, comportment. How do we carry ourselves? Our carriage, again, chara, our carriage, our chariot how we go forth out into the world and discovering from deep childhood memories, discovering from all layers of culture influence, discovering perhaps patternings that are from some other realm, some other experience that may be revealed in dream or in some yoga nidra deep meditative state. But all of that needs to come to the surface in yoga. All of that 
creates a narrative that from history brings us into the present and launches us into the future. Story, all life wrapped up in story. One of the beauties of relationship finds its mooring in telling the story. A friend, what is a friend? A friend is not only someone who will talk and tell her story, but a friend is someone who will go into that place of reserve and quiet and hear and welcome in your story. And this scripting, this truly literary moment at the ground and the base of who we become to the world, this is the stuff of refinement. This is the stuff where Shakespeare, so important in the teachings of my guru from India who had studied Shakespeare when she was a very young woman and actually a girl, that in Shakespeare, we learn archetypes. We learn deep emotion. We learn about the flawed, tragic figure. We learn about the hero. We learn about betrayal, and we learn about the courage and the humor possible in the human toolbox that we can choose to energize. So Savichara invites us to tell the story, to listen to the story, to work with the story. The Yoga Vasishta, a wonderful gathering of 64 nested stories from a thousand years ago, some of them from even much earlier in India, reminds us the vitality, the integrity, the importance of story. And it also shakes it up a little bit with a magical realism that as our dreams become markers by which we can check in on our own narrative story, that those markers can allow us to become, again, quite playful, quite imaginative, quite constructive in our way of thinking about our story, incorporating the stories of others, and creating from this place of movement a story that will be auspicious for all. So as a yoga teacher, how to work with Savitarka, Nirvitarka, Savichara, Nirvichara. First of all, invite your students to develop a concentration practice on objects of beauty, to become familiar with the earth, the waterfall, the rising sun, the local breeze or the harsh wind, with a sense of place, gain intimacy with physical presence, and allow that physical presence to open your student to a moment of Zen. Most yoga studios are crafted in a way to bring quiet. 
Bring your students to a place of observing and noting the thought and consideration that went into the crafting of this physical space and invite your students to create a beautiful place in their own environment where they can do yoga and where they can sit quietly and invite them to validate those experiences of release, of emptying, where they're able to truly be present in the moment. Second, invite your students to become ace crafters of the journal. And we talked earlier about keeping a dream journal. Keep an awake journal. Keep a journal that gives little scenarios of, yeah, my mother said this to me. Happy stuff, or sometimes the dark stuff will emerge, and that's always part of the human narrative. The Savichara requires self-reflection. The Savichara requires preparing intimacy with one's own story so that the deep questions can be asked. Patterns will emerge from the telling of story. Resentment, it returns. What can be done about that resentment? Will telling the story help? Or will telling the story merely reinforce a difficult situation? Okay, all of those nuances, I love this word sukshma, sukshma, subtle. There's not really a good word for it in English. Sukshma, when translated into subtle, just means something sort of small. But in fact, this sukshma reality speaks to all of that collection of samskaras, all of that reservoir of asanas, all of that history of conditioning that must be brought into awareness in order to be lifted up into a place of shunya, into a place where it too can be let go, where it too can be engaged with a sense of playfulness. And with a sense of playfulness comes a recognition that not only were all of these objects put there for my experience, and for my liberation, but so too, the telling of the story, all of these subtle influences, all of these desires that seek expression and fulfillment, they're all there for the sake of experience. And ultimately, every story can and eventually perhaps will point to the possibility of being cleansed, of being purified, of being winnowed in such a way that one can celebrate the story having been told and then simply fully 
and completely dwelling in that place of silence, dwelling in that place of calm, retreating into that place of Kashina Vritti, that place of Chitta Vritti Narodaha. These are samadhi with seed. With skill in vichara, transcendence, clarity of authentic self arises. There, the wisdom bears righteousness. Its condition is different from heard or inferred knowledge because of its distinct purpose. Ta eva sarva bijaha samadhi. Ta eva sabijaha samadhi. Ta eva sabija samadhi. Nirvichara vaisharadye dhyatma prasadaha. Nirvichara vaisharadye dhyatma prasadaha. Nirvichara vaisharadye dhyatma prasadaha. Urtam hara tatra prajna. Urtam hara tatra prajna. Urtam hara tatra prajna. Shrutanumana prajnabhyam anyavishaya visheshartatvat. Shrutanumana prajnabhyam anyavishaya visheshartatvat. Shrutanumana prajnabhyam anyavishaya visheshartatvat. Okay, this beautiful cascade of sutras starts by identifying all of those samapatis of sa-vichara, nirvichara, savitarka, nirvitarka, all of those ways of dealing with the physical, the objective world, dealing with the emotional, the internal world, the world of story, that all of these ways of engagement are in fact ways of uniting vision with samadhi, becoming whelmed with these objects, these stories that contain seed. Seed here refers to the karmic process, that for every object, there is a history. For every story, there is content. And these samskaras and vasanas that are creating our perception of the world, creating the narrative we continue to engage and to share, that all of them are with seeds of karma. And the great metaphor repeatedly employed in Indian literature 
for describing karma says that just as a farmer plants the field with a seed, just as the watering and the tending and the management of that field slowly yields first plants and then crops that then can be harvested and then can become food, so also the stuff of our life arises from a place of seed and cultivation brought to fruition, and this process, properly understood, can provide the experience and provide that liberation when it reaches its fullness and serves its purpose. So in the next part, we get this idea that with skill in, in vichara, with skill in rising above both object and story, that an atma prasada, a clarity of authentic self, that this can come to pass by fully engaging, fully understanding, fully appreciating the realm of the physical, by fully engaging, fully understanding, fully accepting the narrative flow, and allowing the dual purpose of experience and freedom to flourish, to come to fruition, we can gain that beautiful place referred to earlier of prasada, of clarification, where every moment, every experience becomes sacred food. In that moment, arising from this working, this sadhana practice, there comes urtam bhara and prajna. Okay, urtam bhara. Urtam, one of the most remarkable and also one of the oldest words in the Sanskrit lexicon. It's a Vedic word that comes through to us in English in all manner of beautiful equivalencies that capture this experience of things being truly as they need to be. One of the words that derives from urta is art. Things that become objects of beauty. Another word that arises in English from that root, urta, is order. Everything being exactly where it needs to be. Order. Another word that comes from urta is the word right. The things are all right. The things have a sense 
of the righteous, of righteousness, exactly where they need to be. And another word within this cluster of variants that we find in the English language alone is the word rhythm. You can hear rhythm, rhythm. Knowing the ebb and flow, hearing the beat as it unfolds, dancing with the rhythm of this back and forth and give and take between the object and the self, between the narrative and the sense of higher self. All of this carries us, bhara, okay, to carry, to bear, to be able to bear the story, whether it be a tragic story or a story of elation, to be able to bear it, to be able to carry it forward within this rhythm. Very Vedic way of viewing the world. In the Rig Veda, there's a fourfold unfolding of this rhythm of life, beginning with uncertainty and chaos, the asat, finding stable ground through a fixed truth or a fixed experience, or sat, and then once having arrived at a world, to engage in a process of adoring that world, of adorning that world through yajna, through sacrifice, through even that simple process and that practice that was described of kindling a lamp, allowing the water to flow, noticing the rising sun, all of those become ritualist behaviors and activities for the good, a sacrificial process of acknowledgement, and that rhythm can lead to rhythm itself. This moment of samapati, this moment of samadhi, this moment where the intersection of object and story makes sense. And with that comes prajna. Prajna. The Buddhist perfection of wisdom, prajna parimita, okay, this notion that our knowledge that goes forward works. It gives us that freedom to both move from a place of emptiness and move through a place of emptiness of shunya into a rhythm that can set us free. Now this is not every day unless you choose to make it every day. The beauty of practice, of abhyasa, is that by doing purposeful meditation and movement and breath, it is possible to establish in a moment, a sequence of moments, a gateway into Rita and Shunya, and a gateway back out of those moments of Samadhi 
into a created loka, into a created world that has purpose, that has meaning, that is laden with a significance. This is the Vishesha Arta. This is the distinct purpose of crafting a realm of experience, crafting a world that is geared and oriented toward that consciousness, toward that clarified prasada chitta, that clarified intentional, significant way of engaging the world, rather than remaining in the morass of a world driven by others, a world driven by a dark history. Remarkable, only to be found in a state of perfect clarity, because if you just hear of the world as it's spoken of by others, or you infer a world in a direction based upon the karmic seeds that have not yet sprouted or have not yet arisen into consciousness itself, that becomes an unexamined life. And as Socrates said, an unexamined life perhaps is not worth living. You go hither and yon, hither and yon, at the whim of culture, at the whim of ego desire, and that won't cohere, that won't hold together. As T.S. Eliot said, the center will not hold. Where can we find that center? Where can we find wisdom? Where can we find order and rhythm? Only through sifting, wandering, discerning within the weeds, allowing things to become an opportunity for an epiphany, an opportunity for, oh, this is why I have done what I have done, or this why this person does what they do. And in both cases, there can be a suspension of judgment. In both cases, there can be an invitation into a place of equanimity, into a place of calm. Now, as a yoga teacher, how can you work with your own experience and the experience of your students in such a way that this realization, this awakening, okay, these are big words, but they're important words, can lead to a project, to a life pattern that will bring one consistently from a place of meaning into a place of meaning. Now, the analogies that you may draw can be very simple. First, test them out in your own life. 
and then see, okay, will this translate in a way that will connect with the students? Now, some culture references may be appropriate. There may be a song that's very current that talks about either love or talks about being in the flow. Okay, those change from time to time and from generation to generation. And try to speak to the exact experience in the yoga class, an experience of equipoise, an experience of quiet, and then invite the students in their journals to own moments in their own life, both on the mat and off the mat, that indicate ritta, that indicate rhythm and order and art and being righteous in a good way. Not self-righteous, but just knowing this is the moment of connection. Invite them to bring those experiences back into class. And without, you know, shaming or browbeating, just make for a little bit of quiet space for people to share from their notebooks or from their memory. And the week prior, was there a moment where you found your center? Was there a moment where you found balance, where you found harmony? And you might have to share a little bit from your own self I shared a little bit about my daily rhythm, starting with an acknowledgement of the realm of the senses, an acknowledgement of the realm of the elements, a willingness to engage dream and story, and finding, not always at the predictable moment, but finding that instant, and it may only be an instant, where the calm emerged, where the calm arrived, where the auspiciousness became the guest, the cherished guest, the treasured guest. And for your students, it may be a moment on the potter's wheel, literally the creation of art. It may be a moment on a surfboard, literally a moment of balance, and maybe in conversation. This deep connection arising from a relationship with a friend, from a relative, from a loved one, or perhaps in some ways, even more profoundly, a moment of encounter with an animal, whether it be a pet or a wild bird or just the simple presence of a raccoon at night or a possum scuttering along the road or across the yard. Okay, all of those moments, those moments that bring us to clarity, these are the moments of samadhi, these are the moments of connection. 
These are the moments of yoga. The karmic residues born of wisdom restrict other residues of karma. When even that auspicious karma is restrained, everything is restrained, resulting in seedless samadhi. Tatjaha samskaronya samskara pratibandhi Tatjaha samskaronya samskara pratibandhi Tatcha samskaronya samskara pratibandhi Tasyapi narodhe sarvanarodhan nirbijaha samadhi Tasyapi narodhe sarvanarodhan nirbijaha samadhi Tasyapi narodhe sarvanarodhan nirbijaha samadhi The practice of yoga has this remarkable, lingering, salutary, salubrious, healthful effect. And as yoga becomes a samskara itself, as the daily practice of yoga becomes the go-to just as one might brush one's teeth, it becomes the context. Yoga itself becomes the builder of present action and future action. Yoga is a daily rhythm becomes a way of ongoing engagement that slowly and surely will eclipse and put to rest. And the commentator Vyasa says, will actually burn up the seeds of those prior activities. So what Patanjali has done, rather insightfully, is to create a psychology of well-being through subtle, gradual, consistent cultivation of appropriate activity, appropriate behavior. Now, the karmic residues of yoga are the sorts of residues that will bring happiness. And let's just unpack a little bit of what has been spoken of in this pada and anticipate a little bit of what will come in the verses that follow. 
One of the things to remember about the first pada is the definition of life resting upon quality of thought. And rather neutral, the five rittis say, you can see things as they are, you can make mistakes, you can conjure and imagine, you can go to sleep, perhaps dream, and you can remember. In a yogic way, if you see things as they are, celebrate them. If you've caught yourself falling into error, recover quickly. If you're going to go through all of the rigmarole of imagining something, imagine something wholesome. If you gain skill in dream life, you can perhaps even invite in dreams that bring you to a place of elevation. And if you're going to remember, remember that yoga class moment. Remember that morning pranayama moment. Remember and re-engage those places of calm. These are the karmic residues born of wisdom. These are the karmic residues that slowly and surely will replace moments of difficulty. It's a beautiful and actually very simple way of engaging the world. Now there's a little bit of a challenge with the way that the first pada of Patanjali concludes. And it's an interesting um, concept that seems to ultimately value sarva narodha. Now what in our reading of the first pada, we've really emphasized the gateways of awakening to reality, to the possibility of purification through the acknowledgement of physical and emotional realities. However, with each Naroda, with each, in a sense, quieting through circumstance of circumstance, there's a sense that there will be a reemergence, a reengagement. And this theme of reengagement of Parinama will be explored particularly in the third pada. But for now, we need to linger on this last sutra of the first pada, which says, Sarva Narodha, Sarva Narodha. It means the restraint, the quieting down, the calmness, not of things in their particular, but of their totality. Sarva, 
Everything needs to go into that place of quiet. This, perhaps considered to be the highest state, is called near Vija Samadhi. One who gains skill with near Vija Samadhi at the moment of the final surrender of body, of thought, and of breath, and that final full stilling may in fact signal an abiding peace, an abiding moment of calm from which one need not return. So in order to understand the context of this word nirbija, we need to recall the agricultural metaphor for the operations of karma. Seeds are planted, they sprout, they grow, they bear fruit, and they die. And they plant new seeds. Now this narrative, this biology metaphor, in fact, describes samsara. That the human person born into this world because of seeds planted in lifetimes prior, re-enters the realm of birth and through the developmental process of learning language, of walking and talking, of receiving education from one's parents and from one's culture, eventually grows into an adulthood where occasions are given for those seeds unresolved to be experienced again, either in a way that will re-entrench those behaviors or in ways that will liberate one from those behaviors. But for most people, their life remains unexamined and they die carrying an abundance of unresolved seedings of past karma. And in the Hindu funeral practice, which involves cremation, the eldest son is asked to be at the funeral pyre, to be present while all of the mantras of transition are being chanted, and then to crack open the skull of the departed parent so that those seeds, which are very, very minuscule, very subtle, these sukshma bijas may be released with the flames up into the atmosphere, and that seeded karma, according to the Upanishads, will join with the rain clouds and the rain clouds to come and linger there until the return of the monsoon and those will fall to the earth with the rain will become the stuff 
of new life in the form of plants and food be ingested perhaps by an animal, perhaps by a human, perhaps by an insect, perhaps even by a fish, and allow that new life to fructify. And in the fructification of that life, the cycle repeats. According to the Buddha and others, that cycle is linked with repeated difficulty and sadness and suffering and dukkha, bringing people to repeated experiences of a despairing mind, of sickness, of unsteadiness, of worry, and that without the self-inflicted blessings of sadhana, of yoga practice, will simply go through it again and again and again and again. Life seeks expression, whether it be an expression of the purified or an expression of the difficult and the dark. Now the heroic goal achieved by such figures as the Buddha, Mahavira, other siddhas throughout history who were said to have ascended to this realm called the Siddhaloka, a realm of total freedom. The question becomes, can one engage the world in such a way that a perfect clarity can be achieved at the time of death, where no seeds are released at that moment of departure. One of the brilliant and interesting aspects of death culture in India is that alongside of the ordinary person who's unresolved karmas must be allowed to return to earth. There's also the tradition, the living tradition of the Jivan Mukta. And I remember meeting in South Delhi some years ago with a dreadlocked sage who was afflicted with polio as a child and who simply sat under a tree observing and meditating, reciting, telling stories. He was a devotee of the goddess. And people came to hear the stories that he told. People came to receive his blessings, and the tree itself became a wishing tree. And his disciples, who would come from all areas of India to be in his presence, would take their wish and place it in a scrap of cloth and tie it to a tree 
and sit with the Baba. And the disciples eventually bought the land around the tree, constructed a vast complex of different temples in honor of Shiva, different manifestations of the goddess. They also created a garden in which children would play. And there would be statues of giraffes, still there, of lions, of tigers, of foxes. And they created a pavilion where 100,000 people could gather to hear his words. And when he passed, they regarded that through his goodness and through his very life, which had been open for inspection by all, that he truly had achieved a state of perfection. There would be no seeds to be released. So as he passed into his next life, they brought salt. And as his body literally lay in state, and as they honored that body from whom the last life breath had departed, they encased the body with salt and built a beautiful samadhi shrine in a pyramid form, a conical form. And not only did I have the honor of receiving his living blessing, I've also had the honor of returning to that samadhi shrine and feeling the quiet and the blessings created by his simple example of giving everything up, sarva narodha, and feeling the vibration created by all of the millions of people during his lifetime and after his passing who hold him up as an exemplar, as a paradigm for a life well-lived, a life through example of doing a yoga being consistent in a yoga such that all things are brought into a place of quiet. And as with this sage, I've been with so many other sages of India who have given themselves over to a life dedicated to helping others and in helping others, their own karma becomes purified. And this, I think, is the lesson of Sarva Naroda, is not to deny the world, but to give to the world so that when the moment of ascent 
when the moment of that last breath leaving the body happens, that rather than that urgent need to live translating over into a next breath and a next body, that that breath in stillness can become a model and an occasion for others similarly to find at least a moment in meditation, a moment in yoga where everything is just as it needs to be. The first pada of the Yoga Sutra covers and includes so many tools for arriving at that blessed state of yoga. In the beginning, the project is announced, Atta Yoganushasanam. Then yoga, having been introduced as a teaching, an anushasanam, finds itself defined precisely and concisely by Patanjali as citta, vritti, narodaha. Now, as a yoga teacher, those are words that you can use to unpack your own understanding of yoga and try to communicate to others what's actually happening in this whole body-mind, emotion, gestalt that emerges spontaneously out of the process of a yoga class or a meditation class. And as we look at those three words that qualify and define yoga, we see first and foremost, citta. This word that relates to outflows from consciousness into the realm of awareness of externals. That's the citta. Vritti are the whirlings and the twirlings as this outflow into the realm of manifest reality flutters, wanders, beckons, lures, cares an allurement, carries an allurement, and as it just ripples and fluctuates like the waters of a disturbed pond, so citta, vritti, narodha, Narodha, a word used by the Buddha to mean arrest, restrain, quiet down, to blow out, bring to a place of calm. With this introduction, you can use your own 
yoga classroom is a metaphor. But as people stand in samastiti, as people bend forward, as they rise upward, as they go from one side to the other, they're in fact very purposefully engaging in vritti, engaging in fluctuation, purposefully, with intent. Usually, in daily life, people are just going here and there, perhaps not even aware that they have a body, most people not even aware that their body derives its energy from the breath. The vrittis are out of control, driven by desire from within oneself, driven by what one is told to do by other people. No sense of agency, no sense of self, no opportunity to even value the realization of self. Now this brings us again to one of the many ways in which yoga has been translated into cultures worldwide. But this notion that you actually have a self, a self that is not an ego must be always born in mind. And I remember some years ago, I was running a retreat for freshmen, first year university students, and a very skilled, bodily aware young woman started weeping at the end of our asana session. And I very gingerly, a little bit tenderly said, oh, what's, you know, is there something that you'd like to share? Didn't want to cause any embarrassment or to pry. And then she just smiled so broadly. And she said, I weep with relief. This is the first time that I, who trained from the time I was a toddler all the way through high school and now entering the university as a dance student. This is the first time I've just done something with my body that was not about other people looking at me. And she just felt this amazing welling up of a quiet within herself that brought about tears. And that ability in the yoga class to bring people to a place where they're no longer compelled to do something, that is truly a gift. And that can arise, as was said, spontaneously, a moment of citta vritti narodaha. However, Patanjali is a deep thinker and a philosopher. And philosophers always want to examine every term of a proposition. So citta, we'll return to that, is this notion of consciousness in relationship. Vritti, all of the comings and the goings. Naroda, the stilling. 
But it's the middle term, the vritti, that captures his attention. Five categories of vritti are designated to be understood by Patanjali. At times, we're able to see things as they are. At other times, we fall into a delusion, a cognitive mistake. At times, very frequently, we go off in flights of fancy and imagination. At times, hopefully, every single night, we drift off into sleep. And at times, we work with memory, memory of the immediate past and memory of the distant past. And by categorizing these vrittis as really the occasions for human being, for human expression, Patanjali succinctly involves a sustained reflection on what can be done with these fluctuations. Quite often, the fluctuations get out of control. And we've, right from the beginning, laid out the premise that to be able to quiet the fluctuations fulfills the purpose and goal of yoga. In this first pada alone, he gives so many modalities for achieving that state of nirodha. He opens by saying, cultivate the twin practices of abhyasa and vairagya. Abhyasa is practice itself, to train yourself again and again to go back into that state of pure being, that place of immediacy in the present moment, coupled with gaining a sense of remove, being able to have a perspective that what's happening out there, including all manner of self-concern, is happening out there, and that there is always a silent witness, a consciousness untouched that merely looks on. And then he coaches us that some people, they're gonna be able to touch in on this once in a while. Other people are going to be firm in their shraddha, in their prajna, in their virya, in their ability to sustain a daily practice, sustain a stability that will ground them in a way that will predispose them more to the state of yoga, chitta than the state of difficulty and suffering. And he says that there are some people extremely intense 
that are very close to all that he has to offer in terms of describing freedom. Okay, so middle, not so good and very good. Okay. And you can invite your yoga students to say, yeah, some days are this way, some days are that way. Some days it's a little bit sluggish and other days it's great. And you know, as a yoga teacher, that some days class goes really great, other days it doesn't. It's all, it's all gonna be okay with the right intention. Then Patanjali describes Ishvara Pranidhana, dedication to a special Purusha, a special monad of consciousness that has never been involved with karma, that has never differentiated itself into chitavritti, that is always supreme and yet remains forever accessible. And he gives a practice, he gives a practice which he names pranava, which states that in the recitation of Om, and by implication the quiet that follows Om, the chitta can become quiet. He specifies that if one makes that a go-to practice, one can overcome even sickness. One can overcome sort of dullness. One can overcome doubt. One can overcome carelessness. One can rise above laziness. One can defeat sense addictions of various sorts. One can dispel all false views. One can not lose ground and can truly defeat in stability. So by listing all of the difficulties, as a yoga teacher, you can encourage people saying that, yeah, you know those moments when you doubt that this yoga is gonna work? Yeah, that's part of the process. But just relax. If you don't wanna do any particular asana, just say Om, that might help. Keep moving, keep moving. And he also talks about the Brahma-vihara, of cultivating friendliness to those who are happy, compassion for those who suffer, sympathetic joy for those with goodness, and equanimity toward those who are, let's say, less than optimal. He also gives so much additional wonderful advice 
that you can share with your students. He says, breath. Learn about your inhale and your exhale. He talks about focus, just become absorbed in something that brings you joy. He says, recall moments, perhaps from childhood, when you have had a moment of being carefree. He said, don't attach. Don't get caught up in things. Just find the way that suits you for pulling back from glomming and holding and grasping onto things. Patanjali also says, listen to your dreams. Remember your dreams. Let your dreams become a guide. And he says, and this is a permission, a beautiful permission, Meditate on whatever you want. Amazing. And with these practices, will emerge an amazing progressive path within meditation. And he states, Savitarka, first instruction is take an object Gaze upon it, think about it, use your memory, use your imagination, use your correct view, correct your false view. Even dream about that object, develop a constancy so that that object becomes transparent to you and in a sense, you become that object. One and two. Then three is know your story. Know where you come from. Know where you're going. Know your desires. Know your shortcomings. Know and maximize your strengths. And be open to hearing and receiving the stories of others. And just as with immersion in the physical, there can be a sense of transparency with this intimacy with narrative, there similarly can be a release, a letting go, a movement into prasada, a movement into clarity, a movement into blessing. And that savichara, nirvichara, opens yet another experience for the human. And this is an experience called Urtam Bhara, an experience of artistry, an experience of order of the highest kind, an experience of righteousness, an experience of rhythm, celebrating the rhythm of life with wisdom, a wisdom that benefits oneself and a wisdom that can truly inspire others. Now, all of that process is said to be sabija, seeds 
of karma, samskaras, impressions, and in this case, that whole list is all about building positive yogic impressions that will bring about wonderful auspiciousness within life, such that a life well-lived according to these yogic principles will build toward a final passing, a final release of the breath into a place of abiding peace. Yogas, Chittavriti, Narodha, Sarva Narodha, Nirbija Samadhi. Yoga, the quieting of all of those fluctuations, ultimately leading to a state of eternal presence. Austerity, self-study, and dedication to Ishvara are Kriya Yoga. Kriya Yoga is for the purpose of cultivating samadhi and diminishing the afflictions. Tapaha, Svadhyaya, Ishvara Pranidana, Kriya Yogaha, Tapaha, Svadhyaya, Ishvara Pranidhanani, Kriya Yogaha, Tapaha, Svadhyaya, Ishvara Pranidhanani, Kriya Yogaha, Samadhi bhavanartaha klesha tanu karanartascha. Samadhi bhavanartaha klesha tanu karanartascha. Samadhi bhavanartaha klesha tanu karanartascha. Ah, Kriya Yoga, Kriya, to do, Yoga, Chittavriti Narodha. So these are three primary practices identified at the very beginning of the Sadhanapada, the very beginning of systematic instruction on how to do yoga supplementing, complementing, building upon what has already been covered in the first pada. And with this, we are handed by Patanjali three primary central avenues, pathways to samadhi and pathways that will help 
ameliorate the difficulties in life. So the very first practice, austerity, is tapas. Tapas, very old Vedic word, from tap to burn. And tapas, or austerity, entails taking on something that will, as they say in India, do the needful for the sake of purification. Many times in life, particularly with all of the amenities and the blessings that have been given to us by modern science and technology, we don't struggle very much. People are tended to. They don't, most of them, have to grow their own food. Most people don't struggle when it comes to finding a place to rest. Most people live in a bubble of comfort. Overwhelming majority. Okay, of course, we have concern and compassion for the very, very challenged people in homelessness and addiction. But for the most part, we're doing, as a culture, worldwide, certainly better than was the case 300 years ago. But yet, we have a need to find our edge, and tapas provides that edge. As a yoga teacher, you invite students to find their edge in every single yoga class. Often, it's a physical edge with that movement just a little bit more to one side or the other, releasing that fascia that allows people to find a little bit more space. That's one way of doing tapas. And then another way of doing tapas is abhyasa, as we talked about earlier. Abhyasa in terms of a daily practice. This is a form of austerity, asking people to dedicate time every single day to a practice of at least some form of yoga. It might be the Trabunda. It might be Surya Namaskar. But in our training, is received from India directly. Our teacher was from India. And we entered into a weekly practice that is fairly commonplace among people in India but perhaps not so commonplace in terms of modern yoga studio culture. And yet, we experimented with this with good results, and you as a yoga teacher might be able to introduce it to certain students in certain contexts. And this is a twofold practice of tapas. One, to offer for your students to fast one day a week. And our fast was a fast that entailed 
fruit juice, herb tea, water, from the time of waking up until the time of waking up the next day. And this fast allows for a cleansing. The very first week, second week, third week, it'll feel peculiar, different, uncomfortable. But eventually this purification of doing without solid food for one day, a week at a time, can create a sort of beautiful rhythm and will stoke up a little bit of heat in the body, a little bit of extra energy. So that's one form of tapas, very traditional. A second form of tapas is silence. And in our community, we were given the gift and the permission of in the midst of whatever else we were doing to just carry a notepad and to write if something really needed to be communicated. And I remember one day, some years ago, being in the presence of a businessman in what is now Chennai, what was then called Madras, and these two sadhus who were seeking alms came into the office, and these young men just simply glowed with this radiance of tapas in a very sustained silence, communicated their needs, moved on. But what silence does is it shows the power of speech. And in keeping silence for a period, with us it was one day a week, or silence for even a more extended time, when the urge and the need to speak wells up again, you feel the importance, you feel the blessing, you feel the power of the word. You feel the gift of what in the Vedas is called Vak or Vach, the goddess of speech, who empowers us to say what we need empowers us to describe. Speech empowers us to request. Speech allows us to give praise and appreciation. Very much called into focus with the heat and from the heat that is generated within a period of silence. Then the second aspect of Kriya Yoga, named Svadhyaya, suggests a returning intensively and repeatedly to this place called Sva. And Sva is a derivative of Su. And Su is about happiness, is about our best possible place of being. And the aya part of it comes from i, which is a Sanskrit word for go. Adi, which intensifies this practice of going where? To sva, to our highest being, 
to that place of innate goodness. Defined in yoga, as we now know, as Chittavriti Naroda, defined as that place of equanimity, of equipoise, defined as that place of abiding calm. And to be able to recover that sense of well-being in the midst of all of the comings and goings of life, that is the challenge of Svadhyaya. The third aspect of Kriya Yoga is Ishvara Pranidhana, already introduced by Patanjali, very carefully defined. And it suggests that we can dedicate ourselves both to that place of the good and to the place of the ultimate best. We can devote ourselves, fashion a paradigm to which we can aspire, wherein we can imagine ourselves to be beyond the clause of karma, to be in a place where we are no longer planting seeds of negativity, we're no longer coping with the results of having planted those seeds of negativity. We can imagine ourselves in a place without the fruition grounded on the past, grounded on peer pressure, grounded on the culture that would have us be other than our best self. So that practice, very important, echoed in the beginning of the Yoga Sutra and re-emphasized a little bit later in this particular segment called the Niyamas. Now, why do we do these three practices? First, they cultivate samadhi. And we know samadhi has been defined as this collapse of difference between subject and object. Samadhi has been defined through samapati as the simultaneous rising up of things into a place of transparency and clarity. Samadhi has been charted for us in terms of Savitarka, working with an object until it becomes nirvitarka, clear. Savichara, working with story and narrative until it becomes clear. And that as that clarity emerges, and as yoga and samadhi become the go-to, that we're able to move incrementally into that space of emptiness, of spaciousness, of purity, of clarity. And that samadhi connection we find delineated by Patanjali as serving the function of thinning out tanu, the kleshas, 
Now in the first pada, we heard about doubt and carelessness. We heard about all of the negative mind states, and there was a long list. But in the second pada, which introduces and gives the specifics, we find klesha karmas, referred to collectively in the first pada generically as klishta karma. We find them spelled out in five different categories to be explored. Now, for yoga teachers, the important part is to get your students to a place of feeling and owning that moment within a yoga class of profound, perhaps even sustained calm. That state, whether in Shavasana, whether in pushing a pose into a particular place, whether in holding or just even experiencing the fullness of breath, that place, that place of sukha, is to be lifted up, to be acknowledged, to be applauded, that place of the sva. Inviting your students to find the edge. Playing within yoga, whether it be asana, a pose held perhaps a little bit longer, or a pose attempted that's sort of a glory pose, whether it be shalaba asana, whether it be mayur asana, which is the earliest non-seated posture that's been documented, something that makes that student feel special. And I remember doing a class with a senior yoga teacher known to so many, grounded in New York City, and at a, a yoga event, and then just quietly following instruction and doing things. I'd been doing asana for so many decades, and he had me in positions I didn't even know, A, existed, or B, certainly that I could ever access them. And it was a moment of not just aha, but it was a moment of wonderful affirmation. And as a yoga teacher, you are able to provide those openings to your students. And you're also able, and believe it or not, you become really a moral authority just by example for your students of what truly is possible. And what you can do is name that experience of difficulty, invite students to think about, perhaps even journal about, some of the challenges that they encounter, and then suggest klesha tanu karana arta, that the purpose, the arta of yoga is the thinning out of those places of challenge, the thinning out, the diminishing of those places of difficulty. The body and the breath reflect the workings of the mind. 
And as fluidity is gained in body and breath, so also a purification happens with the mind. People generally leave yoga class either in a good mood or in a pensive, challenged mood. And in either case, there's an opportunity for self-growth. There's an opportunity for svadhyaya. And to extend that journey into self-discovery, you as yoga teacher have the gift to share with your students of brainstorming with them how to journey even further, how to find an austerity that will bring purification. As mentioned, the standard ones are a fast or a day or a period of silence. And those experiences can be revelatory for your students. And these practices of Kriya Yoga in their simplicity include so much in terms of pathways, methods toward that wonderful state of Chitta, Vritti, Narodaha. They help cultivate moments of samadhi. The afflictions, ignorance, ego, attraction, aversion, and desire to live. Ignorance is the field of the other afflictions, whether dormant, attenuated, interrupted, or fully active. Ignorance is seeing the impermanent as permanent, the impure as pure, suffering as pleasure, and the non-self as self. Ego is when the two powers of seer and seen appear to be a single self. Avidya, asmita, raga, devesha, Abhinavesha Kleshaha Avidya Asmita Raga Devesha Abhinavesha Kleshaha Avidya Asmita Raga Devesha Abhinavesha Kleshaha Avidya Kshetra Mutaresham Prasuptatani Vichinodaranam Avidya Kshetra Mutaresham Prasuptatani Vichinodaranam Avidya Kshetra Mutaresham Prasuptatani Vichinodaranam Anityasuchi Sukanatmasu, Nityasuchi Sukatma Kyatiravidya, 
Anitya Suchi Dukanatma Su Nitya Suchi Sukatma Kyatir Avidya Anitya Suchi Dukanatma Su Nitya Suchi Sukatma Kyatir Avidya Durg Darshana Shakyor Ekatma Tevasmita Durg Darshana Shakyor Ekatma Tevasmita Durg Darshana Shakyor Ekatma Tevasmita Ah, the difficulties of life. It all begins with ignorance. And that ignorance extends into egotism, into attraction, into repulsion, and into a desire for continuity, a will to keep moving. Now these five, a little bit parallel to the five categories of thought in the first pada, give a way of identifying the ills and difficulties of life. And by coming to understand the foundations of ignorance, one is given a little bit of a toehold into being able to climb up out of living blindly, living a life governed and defined by this ignorance, by this avidya, by this lack of wisdom, vidya, a lack of wisdom. Patanjali defines this lack of wisdom, anicca suci dukkanatmasu, nitya suci sukatnya kyatir avidya. And this again reminds me a little bit of the Brahma Vihara, that there needs to be a measured, sustained program for discernment. And these words are words to live by. Anitya, everything eventually changes, everything ultimately disappears. This teaching, which echoes the Buddhist teaching on momentariness, and is in fact one of the three great marks of the Buddhist early teachings, okay? We think that things are gonna stay the same. One of my great um, musings that I've shared with others, and they, they understand this, is that whenever you get a new automobile, and by that, it could be a different automobile or it could be a brand new automobile. There will be that moment, whether it's the inelegant collision with a shopping cart 
or you come back to your car and all of a sudden somebody has marred it in some way or another, where you have this realization that, oh, this beautiful object will never retain its beautiful form. There's an impermanence, say if you're young, you're in a rush to grow up, and when you're in the middle, you're holding on to those moments when you were a bit younger, and when you're an elder, there's perhaps a wistful memory of the way things were, and perhaps a little bit of a dread as the body moves inevitably toward the process of aging and decline. Okay? Nothing ever stays the same. Then Suchi. Suchi, this thing, this obsession, this fetish that we have, when we come upon something that we're sure is truly healthful and pure and beautiful and wonderful. And again, using the analogy of the car, no car is a panacea for all things. And similarly, I think we've all had, or many of us have had a moment where we thought we found the perfect cup of coffee, the best cup of tea, the most delicious dark chocolate. And we have reveled in that moment of perfection. And then perhaps, again, like with momentariness, it doesn't last, but there also, particularly with coffee, there comes a point where too much coffee negates that original experience of purity, similarly with tea and with chocolate. Likewise, a wedding dress, so beautiful. And I remember my wife's wedding dress and we were so careful to preserve it. It was a beautiful day, our wedding. And yet, when we retrieved that wedding dress, so many decades later, it no longer was pure, okay? There had been a little bit of mold, a little bit of moths. We weren't able to hold it. That pure moment, at least in that physicality, dissolved. Anitya Asuchi Sukha. Okay. Sukha, we all want sukha. We want that sugar. We want things to make it okay. But again, every experience eventually yields with the passing of time, with the change of circumstances. All sukha eventually leads to a disappointment. And I recall when um, I got my PhD, I was feeling so relieved, I was feeling so happy, 
I was feeling so proud. I was feeling that finally, after all those years of struggle, I had arrived. And I had a real, like, happiness that depended upon an external accomplishment. And my guru, and all good gurus are um, a little bit of a combination of, of cheerleader and a reality check, said, so, uh, what's your next, you know, it's not over, your life continues, are you going to get a law degree, a medical degree, or what are you going to do? That was a little bit of a, a sobering moment, and I remember being welcomed into my first academic party, and right after having achieved this, this milestone, and my advising department chair said, so what is your next research project? And this idea that somehow this moment of happiness can be stuck in time and endure, not gonna happen. So what happened was I had to admit that no, I had gone to school enough, I didn't need to go for another degree. So no more accolades of that sort. And I then launched headlong into a second book project that took years and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in order to bring to fruition, and then that leads to another, and to another, and to another. So moments of happiness are fleeting. To be appreciated with the underlying sort of sense of void and abyss must always, or will always require attention. And then finally, self. We live a whole life thinking we are who we are. Every individual really in the universe, the mockingbird states its nature as it chirps as only a mockingbird can chirp. A regal lion stalking its prey creates and sustains its identity in its mere presence. And with humans, we get so complicated. We have to learn how to walk. We have to learn how to talk. We have to become educated. We have to decide upon a path within life. We have to, for many of us, follow all that's needed to create a family and to bring new life into the world. And along the way, we have names for each of those different stages. And yet, can our true self be found in any one of those appellations, any one of those names? And the answer, which is not at first obvious, is no. That person with the PhD, eh? Okay, has a PhD. That's not who that person is. That person dedicated to janitorial service, not exactly the totality of who that person is. That person who has given birth to a child carries the name of mother. That state of motherhood is not the totality of that 
individual woman. Okay, like that, any idea of self can and must be deconstructed. These four, anitya, impermanence, ashuchi, not really so pure, dukkha, ultimately going to involve with suffering, anatman, this ultimate need to reject any sense of an identifiable self. These four constitute the ground of ignorance. Similarly with ego, we think we really are what we see. We really think we are what we claim. We really think we are what we do, when in fact, we're different from that. Okay? Our true self, our swa-self, our swarupa, our drashtar, our purusha, always remains separate from that place of ego. So as yoga teachers, you can use various examples to illustrate these first two kleshas. You can remind people that things change. Nothing stays the same. You can remind people of the movie Sunset Boulevard. Okay, sort of a universal culture reference where the aged movie star sees all that had been so wonderful and so pure slipping away and we feel her pain. Okay, this idea of an enduring beauty. We cannot hold on to that. This idea that we can somehow avoid suffering and always be in a state of happiness. Again, this is an ignorant view. Suffering, dukkha, has an inevitability to it. And then this idea of self, and this sort of links ignorance with the problem of egotism. This idea of self, that somehow I am who I think I am, that too must be left behind. Right? To be able to identify falling into some fundamental existential errors Okay, these errors of clinging to permanence, clinging to self, clinging to ideas of purity, okay, all of that will lead only to discomfort. So introducing students to the kleshas presents some challenges in that you have to talk about darkness. People come to yoga class, they don't want to talk about darkness. They don't even want to think about darkness. But you can begin to perhaps analogize this even within observation of body and movement. That if your form in asana doesn't match up with your expectation, then maybe that's an occasion to reflect on who is conjured in my head who I think I should be. Okay, that's perhaps one way 
to introduce this pathway. And another way to invite people into darkness is to simply invite them to share. Where is your edge? Okay, where do you feel that a little bit of a pull, a little bit of a difficulty, a little bit of an assertion has arisen? And say, that edge, that edge can be a learning edge. Combined with the practices of Kriya Yoga, combined with finding that edge, combined with aspiring to that highest self, combined with a measured and realistic assessment of self, aspiring to higher self, those aspects of Kriya Yoga can help address, can help remedy the difficulties inherent within ignorance, the difficulties that arise when ego concerns move a person forward into the world in a way that only brings pain to self and only makes annoyance for others. So Kriya Yoga, a remedy for the kleshas. Thanks for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Discover more episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills.